Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and this intro will go five hours and 25 minutes, although I do think we'll be able to cut 15 of those minutes by the end. Yeah, we may be in for an epic episode, or at least we are going to be talking about an epic movie, definitely the longest movie that we've ever covered here on Awesome Movie Year, because here in our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about the year's biggest flop and really one of the most notorious flops of all time, and that is Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate with its running time of three hours and 39 minutes. And I was referencing the rough cut he showed to the studio executives, and he, they didn't know how long it was going to be, and, he, uh, and he, it was five hours and 25 minutes. But he didn't tell them that. He just said, it's long, but I think we could cut 15 minutes. <laughs> so generous of him to be willing to cut that down by 15 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, what what is there? I mean, Heaven's Gate, I feel like, is one of those movies that even if you don't know anything about, like, the plot or who's in it or really any other details, it is still known as shorthand for a giant box office failure. You know, we've talked about some big failures in our flop episodes, stuff like North, which is also really quite notorious. but. Other than, I was trying to think, other than maybe like Ishtar, I can't think of another movie that is so definitively known for being a failure. Here's the difference. Well, Geely, maybe Geely. Maybe Geely, you're right. We did talk about Geely too, yeah. Here's the difference though. All those movies we mentioned received traditional releases and were given a chance to fail or succeed based on whatever they were. This movie had no chance to succeed based on what happened with it. Right. It had a weird kind of release where Chimino did cut it down. It's not five hours and 25 minutes long. He turned in a cut that was three hours and 39 minutes. The studio accepted that cut. They released it in New York City in November of 1980. And the reviews were so bad that the movie closed after one week in New York. And then the studio had Chimino edit it down even further to a cut that was 149 minutes, um, which is the version that is very rarely seen or shown anymore. But at the time, that was the version that ended up going out to the widest audience because in April 1981, the studio released that version uh, nationwide and it played for two weeks before closing. Yeah, what chance did that movie have when Chimino, along with the you know executives, released a I guess a memo to the trades uh, that said, "Hey, give us a chance to cut this thing the way it deserves to be cut." Like this thing was kneecapped before it ever got out there. So I'm I'm not going to spend this whole episode defending this movie because like I I don't hate it. Like it's all right to me, but like. You know, it's got a very unfair reputation considering how, whether you like it or hate it, like it's not the worst movie ever made by a long shot. No, it isn't. And I kind of hated it, but I certainly wouldn't say that it's the worst movie ever made. But I think that reputation was almost immediate, right? It was released just in New York and just for one week, but it had so much attention on how bad it was that by the time the shorter version was released, uh, five months later in April of 81, that's already what people were talking about. It's fascinating. Uh, you know, I watched Siskel and Ebert discussing it. And right away, the first thing they talk about is how it got these terrible reviews when it was in New York. And, uh, you know, Gene Siskel had seen the longer version, the New York version, and Roger Ebert, it seemed, had not seen the longer version, but that's how they start talking about it. So it was already, you know, even in the absence of like social media and stuff, it was already in the zeitgeist that this was a terrible disaster. Yeah. Well, that's a lot because of all the articles that were coming out from the set about just what a runaway production it was. And. And all the fights that Chimino was having with United Artists, right? That's who 
the studio. Was yes, United the Artists yeah. was the studio. Yeah. So in preparation, besides this, and I felt like of all the movies we've covered, if I didn't stop myself, I could have gone down the deepest research hole on this one. Um, <laughs> and so I, what I did is, you know, obviously watch the movie. And we, we all watched Deer Hunter again in preparation for this. And I watched the documentary Final Cut, which is based on the book Final Cut, Art, Money, and Ego in the Making of Heaven's Gate, a film that sank United Artists by Stephen Bach, who was the executive in charge of uh, United Artists at the time. So he clearly knew what was going on. Um, but I, I will say that you're right. There were all these stories about the production itself being disastrous. But I feel like there are a lot of movies where... There are stories that come out about the production being chaotic, there being a lot of clashes between creators. And when the movie comes out, it's still, right. it's, the response is good. Yeah. So I feel like it was also the, the, the publicity about the movie itself being terrible, that there were such intense negative responses to it in that one week New York release that that carried over to that wider release all around the country. Yeah, and that's, uh, I want you to get to the reviews because I have a comment about that as well, but I'll, I will hold off for that, uh, uh, you know, until then. Okay, um, so I mean, in terms of, of raw numbers, it did ultimately gross $3.5 million on its budget of 44 million, which of course ballooned over the course of that production, as you say, Jason, that was, was troubled and Chimino making all of his ridiculous demands. Uh, and the studio giving it to him. I mean, you mentioned the Deer Hunter that we we watched in preparation, which was Chimino's previous film and had been a massive hit, won the Oscar for Best Picture, other Oscars. And best he director. Was, he won right. Best Director. He was mm -hmm. revered. And so he was given carte blanche on this film to do whatever he wanted because he was considered a genius. And... Uh, Boy, did he squander that. And I, I think regardless of whether you think this is a good movie or not, it's still clear that Chimino used up all his goodwill. Um, yeah, I think um, so that budget, I think he turned in a budget of like 11.6 million. So when you're going to balloon it to 44, it's not a good point, right? Right. Um, obviously, he didn't want to. He would, like you said, it's carte blanche. They gave him a blank check. So, you know, that was also on United Artists, right? Just go and do what you want. They, there was no system in place as far as like either having an executive on set or, hey, we're going to cut the money off at this point, no matter what, or how do we make this thing together? And I'm cool with like that. But like, you can't just blame Michael Cimino, you know, when there are all these problems going on all over the place. But I think it's it's great that a studio will give a director that kind of freedom. But when a director doesn't know how to use the freedom properly, then, then that is a problem. And I think a lot of, it really does come down to Chimino because he had so much control over this that in terms of the quality of the film, you cannot really place it at anyone else's feet other than him. I mean, I guess, except that you're saying, you know, you're coming from the point of view that it's horrible and this and that. And I'm saying, I think it's, Okay. And BBC Culture said it was number 98 on the list of the greatest 100 American films in 2015. And if you can't trust BBC Culture, who can you trust? <laughs> I mean, there certainly is uh, a real reassessment of this film that, you know, maybe we'll talk about more. But yeah. my, point, my point is that regardless, like even if you like the movie, the credit or the blame all goes to Chimino. I think that's my point. Well... As you know, you murdered him in 2017, so he's not here to defend himself. I think he died in 2016, actually. But You did the murder, way. you would know. You'd know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so uh, it did, however, get an Oscar nomination for Best Art Direction, which I feel like is deserved, even though I didn't Beautiful. like the movie. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, the, the set gorgeous. design and everything is because yeah. Chimino was so exacting on it is, is quite impressive and uh, competed at the Cannes Film Festival for the Palme d'Or. And Chimino in general, I think, has been more appreciated in Europe uh, over time, over the course of his career, than he ended up being in, in the United States. Yeah. Um, of course, also was nominated for five Razzies, including Worst Picture, uh, Worst Director for Michael Chimino, which he won, Worst Actor for Chris Christopherson, which why? I feel like is not fair. Yeah, why? Uh, worst screenplay and worst score. So, worst score. Why? Yeah, 
I mean, and the score mainly uses that, and I forget what it is, but it's a very recognizable piece of classical music that comes up again and again that I kind of found uh, annoying, but it's not a part of the original score. As we've established, the Razzies, they usually tend to pile on to one movie at a time. And just if it's up for picture, it's up for everything else. Right. And certainly the Razzies also will glom on to any pop culture narrative about something. And obviously that was the narrative of this year of Mm -hmm. the disaster that was Heaven's Gate. So the other thing in terms of reviews is there's really two kind of sets of reviews. There's reviews that came out from the New York release of the uh, original cut, which is the cut that we all watched. And then there's reviews that came out in the wider release of that two and a half hour cut, which is uh, very, is almost entirely unavailable to watch now and no one really gives much credence to it. So watching Siskel and Ebert, they gave it, of course, two thumbs down. Siskel had seen it both in the longer and the shorter versions, Ebert only in the shorter version. Uh, So in his review, uh, based on that shorter version, Roger Ebert said, if the film was formless at four hours, it is insipid at 140 minutes. At either length, it is so incompletely photographed and edited that there are times when we are not even sure which character we are looking at. Christopher Walken is in several of the Western scenes before he really gets a close-up and we see who he is. John Hurt wanders through various scenes to no avail. Chris Christopherson is the star of the movie and is never allowed to generate enough character for us to miss should he disappear. It is the most scandalous cinematic waste I have ever seen. And remember, I've seen Paint Your Wagon. No, I have not seen Paint Your Wagon, the Clint Eastwood musical Western. But um, it was interesting. And Ebert spends a lot of his review and also spend a lot of the Siskel and Ebert segment talking about how terrible this movie looks. And it was interesting to me because watch, I know I completely agree. I think the set design is great as we talked about, but watching this movie, it's so muddy and so washed out. I thought, oh, the DVD that I got just must be not a great transfer. And if you get, you know, a Blu-ray or something, or maybe when you watched it originally, it looked great. It's, I guess, meant to evoke kind of like the sepia tones of old time photographs. But yeah, I I thought the visual style of this movie was just muddy and grimy and and I didn't like it. But this whole idea of it not being photographed well, I mean, you know, it's this scrub named Vilmos Sigismund who, what has he ever done? Close Encounters, Long Goodbye, The Deer Hunter and won an Oscar for Close Encounters and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. So like, yeah, he sucks as a cinematographer, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. But I think he's been directed to shoot it in a certain way. I thought, man, there was some great shot design in here. I think, are you just talking about the actual colors here or what are we talking about? The colors and I mean, mainly, yes, the colors, but also, I mean, as Ebert points out, and you know, this is kind of jumping to the end of the movie, but the big climactic battle between the Cattle Ranchers Association and all these immigrants um, is impossible to follow because it's just filled with dust. You cannot see anything that happens. It is a terribly directed, terribly shot scene. I will agree with that. However, there are some wonderfully shot scenes in here. Um, You know, the roller skating dancing scene. The the fucking roller skating dancing scene. Again, I'm just talking about the way it's shot, Josh. The big dances at Harvard or whatever at the beginning. Like, beautiful stuff, right? The way that Zingisman takes you into the town. Like, you can't knock the... Like, this is a well-shot film. I, I mean, I agree with you. There could have been that last battle sequence. Someone needed to be like, "Hey, what? What's what? Can you tell us the story here?" But or just but, like, yeah. who are the people and where are they physically in the shot? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was you know them ra- going round and round, and the idea was you know everything with movement going around. I think was supposed to be like the immigrants, and everything that was more kind of like uh, static was the uh, government uh, or the military type people. I guess. But I mean, also by that point, I certainly didn't care about anything that was happening after three plus hours of that film, but it doesn't help that you're like, oh, here's some action. And then it's just completely impossible. Well, well, again, I mean, I have to say like, you know, so he had all this money and he was doing what he wanted. And then they were like, no, now you're going to come in at our budget and on time. And like, would it have been different if they had 
either one put those parameters in place at first or two just said like which people had done before like cleopatra they were like oh we're screwed like we're just gonna have to go with it and what however it turns out it turns out and then it became a big hit right at that point if you're in for a dime are you in for a dollar right like should they have just said like we don't have a choice let's let him finish the movie the way he had it planned i mean i can't see anything here that shows promise to be perfectly honest and i will say you know to give context for my feelings on this film i also hated the deer hunter so and i love the deer hunter and I most people it. do i mean it was as we said it won multiple oscars it had a huge reputation and it's still considered a classic but to me Everything that Chimino does in The Deer Hunter that I didn't like, he just does like 10 times more in this film. And I guess that's why I'm arguing because like when I watch The Deer Hunter, I'm like, man, this is a beautiful looking movie too. So I mean, The Deer Hunter certainly looks better than this. Um, that's not necessarily one of the big faults of The Deer Hunter is the way it looks. And that was also, I believe, shot by Vilma Sigmund. So right. yeah, but uh, Chimino clearly just whatever he's doing, it's not. It's not working for me. In the documentary, Vilma Zygismond talks about it and he says it's like a beautiful movie and that you can't, you can't find one thing wrong with the way he shot it. So, you know, there are differing opinions, shall we say, Josh? Yes, yes, indeed. So Vincent Canby in the New York Times, he I reviewed hope, it. This is the one I was hoping you would Yeah. Bring. So he reviewed it, of course, in its New York release and his negative review was partially blamed for the failure of the release of the film, uh, the initial release of the film in New York. He said, Heaven's Gate fails so completely that you might suspect Mr. Chimino sold his soul to the devil to obtain the success of the deer hunter, and the devil has just come around to collect. The grandeur of vision of the Vietnam film has turned pretentious. The feeling for character has vanished, and Mr. Chimino's approach to his subject is so predictable that watching the film is like a forced four-hour walking tour of one's own living room. Mr. Chimino has written his own screenplay, whose awfulness has been considerably inflated by the director's wholly unwarranted respect for it. Nothing in this movie works properly. For all of the time and money that went into it, it's jerry-built, a ship that slides straight to the bottom at its christening. Heaven's Gate is something quite rare in movies these days, an unqualified disaster. Yeah, and he should harsh. He should have been fired because he he does it. That review says, I don't know anything about movies. That's what that I, review says. So I mean, I'm not saying that uh, Vincent Canby is a genius, but I mostly agree. I feel like there is very little to like about this film. And I do feel like it's. Well, I mean, you know, we, my, we all know how you should have been fired for a long well, time. That's right? You know, <laughs> my, my main disagreement with Vincent Canby is that I also did it like I feel like this is on a continuity with the deer hunter in terms of all of its flaws. Listen, even Stephen Bach, right, who wrote the book about why this took down UA said in the documentary, like nobody was reviewing the movie for what it was. Nobody was actually saying, hey, here's a fault of the movie. Or here's, you know, something that works. They were all doing what Vincent Camby did. Like, oh, pretentious director boy gets money and goes wild. Like, he said nothing of the substance of the movie to make me consider it one way or the other. That's not a good review. And it's not a responsible review. It, it's, it's just a way to take down someone who they thought got too much too soon. I mean, I disagree with literally everything that you said there. And I mean, just because the portions of the quoted portions that I have there, I mean, I'm trying to find the most uh, entertaining digs, I think he's saying, because it is a very, very scathing review. But I mean, there's more to the review than that. And it I basically think says nothing works in the movie, nothing. And I right? agree, nothing works in this movie. This is a very, very bad Again, movie. you're talking about one of the greatest cinematographers in history, and you're saying I, he's not a capable cinematographer in this film. I am saying that what he did in this film at the direction of Michael Cimino is bad. I, you know, just because he's a great cinematographer, I guarantee you look through Vilma Sigmund's whole, like whole filmography and he's worked on other bad movies. That doesn't mean he's a terrible cinematographer or that he doesn't have any talent or that he doesn't know what he's doing. Sometimes things don't work out. I'm saying I can give you that one battle scene, but you can't tell me this is a really nicely photographed film other than that. I agree with Roger Ebert that it is very muddy and washed out 
and deliberately hard to see. And it's deliberate. It is purposeful. It is Zygmunt doing what he has been asked to do, which is good from the perspective of working on a film. But what he's been asked to do is a terrible idea. And that comes from Michael Cimino. I guess. I mean, if Sigismund, in retrospect, like I said, said that you can't find one fault with the way this movie is shot, then maybe, you know, it wasn't just Chimino who said it. It's him, too, who clearly believes that they made something here. And that's fine that he's proud of his own work. I'm disagreeing with him. There's plenty of terrible movies that the people who made them are proud of. That doesn't mean that they're above criticism. And uh, I will say also in reference to Vincent Canby, in his review, Roger Ebert, of course, because he's coming at this all these months later to the shorter version, uh, defends Vincent Canby um, and what he did and, uh, you know, tries to kind of absolve him of the blame that it's not Vincent Canby's fault that this movie is bad. It's not as well. It's just an irresponsible review. He didn't. I mean, I think the backlash against the review is totally fair because it's not a good review. Like it's it it talks more about like his hatred of this like you know kind of auteur getting too much than as opposed to the film itself. I mean, I don't think it's his hatred of that. I think it's his hatred of the abuse of that, which is the way I see it as well. That this guy got carte blanche and he squandered it. He made a terrible movie out of it. And Vincent Canby, who clearly thinks that the deer hunter is brilliant, is super disappointed with the result in this film, which I think is also fair. Hmm. Do you have a Vincent Canby review of the deer hunter? I'm not to hand. No, but I, bet, I, mean, I would bet that his review is, oh, maybe maybe we all got caught up, caught up too much. And this guy really isn't that good, no matter what we we said. I mean, I you know, he's he's saying that the deer hunter has grander a vision in the deer hunter. So, I mean, even in this review of heaven's gate, he's complimenting the deer hunter while he's saying that Chimino has failed in his follow-up to the deer. Is hunter. he complimenting it by saying he sold I, I the soul to the is. devil to make soul it? That's a great compliment there. <laughs> I mean, he's saying that that was a great film, but that this film is bad and reveals that maybe Chimino is not a talented director and maybe it was luck or whatever that got him to make such a great film. I previously. mean, again, having watched Thunderbolt and Lightfoot before this, which is a good movie that, you know, that's irresponsible again, because he already had made one good movie that earned an Oscar nomination for one of its actors. So at I mean, least I be accurate, dum-dum. I don't see how you <laughs> saying that it's irresponsible. There are so many great filmmakers who make bad movies sometimes. Right, come, but that's not what you're saying. And you say, how disappointing is it that this movie is bad when this guy made great movies previously. That's not what, you, that's great. If that's what you're saying, that's fine. But that's not what you said. You're saying maybe it's luck that he was able to make one of the greatest movies of all time based on this because he has shown that he has no skill. But if you went back to his early work, you would see he does have skill. I don't know what Vincent Canby thought of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and I haven't seen it, but I don't think that this is irresponsible. And I think the idea of blaming a reviewer, we talked about this in one other episode, and I can't remember which one it was, where the filmmakers blamed the New York Times review or the LA right. Times review. I think it was the LA Times review for the failure of their film, I, I think is, is a cop-out and is disingenuous. And no one, no critic has that much power. I'm saying, and I'm not blaming Vincent Canby for the failure of this movie. I already stated that I think that they kind of screwed up by taking it off the shelves and re-editing it and like announcing that it wasn't done. Like this is the studio along with Chimino. Like they didn't make the movie they should have made, right? But I'm not blaming Canby. I'm just saying this. I don't agree with his review and I think it's an irresponsible review. And I know you signed a document saying you always have to defend the critic, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> All right. You're well, allowed to crit yeah, I'm allowed to critique the critic, Josh. You are. You are. Let's let's move on then to a critic who actually had some positive things to say. Uh, this is again based on the shorter version. Peter Aykroyd in The Spectator said, Heaven's Gate seems to be a film which, by some strange alchemy of misfortune, attracts more and more disasters until it is buried by them. This is, of course, what makes it interesting. It happens also to be a good film. But that is by the way. It is better than good. It is bizarre. The theme is a familiar one. A few men against the establishment, or against the rich, mixed with a little sex and a lot of violence. But the story does not matter, only the use to which it is put. 
Films with an historical sweep of this kind can always command attention. The imagination of the audience hardly has time to do anything but assent to the self-confidence and the bravura with which Mr. Cimino recreates American history and transforms it into epic. Heaven's Gate is an American populist epic, and we shouldn't let matters of taste stand in the way of our enjoyment of it. So maybe some backhanded compliments there. But I mean, I think what he's saying is that there's such a, a bold vision here that you have to kind of respect it. And and I, yeah, I, I think I, that's fair. I like that stuff. I like, you know, I'm always for taking a big swing, whether you be, you know, connect or not. I will always respect that. Yeah. I mean, and I generally am in favor of that too. And I suppose good for Chimino for running with the opportunity that he had to make the exact film that he wanted to make after the success of The Deer Hunter. And this is a movie we should say that he'd been trying to make for many years before The Deer Hunter is a script that he had written uh, initially in 1971, I think it was. And he was fascinated by this historical uh, event, the Johnson County War, which was the battle between the farmers and the Ranchers Association in the 1890s in Wyoming. Um, so he obviously took all of that and went with it. And I think he doesn't know how to restrain himself. And that's the problem here. But I do appreciate that he decided he was going to do exactly what he wanted to do when he had the chance to do that. So I'm going to agree with you. Yes. You know, he needed, he needed someone to say, you know, whoa, buddy, whoa, (laughs) buddy. Uh, But you know, like you said, Josh, other, I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool story. This idea of like immigrants having to hold their ground against the corrupt government back in the day were, you know, murdering them. Uh, You know, Shane and the Virginian both played on that. I got to say, Josh, maybe I was a little hard on Vincent Camby there because I was equating him with Kathleen Carroll of the New York Daily News, who was the one that was quoted as saying there was nothing good in this movie. And I was just like, well, you don't know movies or anything about movies then. So I apologize, Mr. Camby. Well, I mean, Camby is quite harsh. I mean, he calls it an unqualified disaster. Screw you, Camby! Pretty much like (laughs) saying there's nothing good in it. Yeah. but Josh, I wanted to bring up Kevin Thomas's review from the LA Times, who gave it a positive review. And then when they asked him about it, he said, I don't think in 20 years of movie reviewing, I've been so totally alone. <laughs> right. And I mean, obviously, he wasn't entirely alone. And I will say, you know, The Spectator is a, is a UK publication. So as we're referencing in Europe, even maybe right at this moment, Chimino has a bit more respect. And a lot of his perspective, Peter Aykroyd, is about uh, being an outsider looking at American cinema or American history yeah. and, and having a certain distance from it. So I'm sure Kevin Thomas felt at least slightly vindicated over the years as, as more people came around to this film. Yeah, it became uh, all the rage in like these film festivals like Venice and New York, right? Like in the 2012 or around that point in time, it was like a, a sold out affair wherever it played. Yeah, I mean, it took a long time, obviously, to get there, but eventually some, some people at least had uh, come around to it. I have one more quote for you, Josh. Yeah. Um, this is from, uh, from Chris Christofferson. He said, I'll bet Michelangelo cared. I'll bet Picasso cared. Anybody who believed in their artistic vision probably cared. I didn't care that much, but I was glad to be working with somebody who did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like a Chris Christopherson thing. And he's a very, I mean, I, I think his performance in this movie is fine for what it is, but he's, a, he's definitely one of those actors who's just kind of like, hey, here I am chilling on a movie set. And that's always his vibe. That's it. That's what he does. I think, I mean, maybe Alice doesn't live here anymore. Wasn't he in that Vince Scorsese? Maybe get a little more out of him than that. But. Yeah, I mean, not that he hasn't given good performances, but but I do think that's, that's part of his vibe. And you get him to play that kind of a character, maybe, who is just this kind of chill person. So uh, that doesn't surprise me that he said that. Uh, so having seen that documentary, Jason, do you want to mention anything else on the background here? Uh, I got a little fired up there, Josh. I you did, but that's good. You know, I needed- good to have passion on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you covered a lot of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the thing is about that. Um, that second cut that they put out, Josh, right? The one that's like two and a half hours. The stuff that they cut out 
would be all the stuff that I would defend. And I know other people have defended that. I, when I mentioned the skating scenes, you just went, you know? Yeah, like, and see, and I was gonna uh, say, looking, you know, Wikipedia has this list of things that were cut in that shorter cut. And I, reading that list, I thought, I would have cut all of those things. I think all of those things deserve to be cut. So, And I just we, think, you know, the skating, the dancing, some of the battle stuff, like, Zygismond was say, saying, like, the way Chimino directs, like, is like he, paints with like his set uh, his shot design like so he moves extras and this is part of the problem right he can spend hours like saying no you know uh older lady you go in the back row younger man you go in the front and then he could just be keep uh, keep on doing that right but you know we know the same thing about like uh coppola from like apocalypse now where they, they would wait half the day out for the right light but coppola somehow made it work right yeah no the original budget was 7.5 million they used 1,200 extras on this thing. They made the actors go to something called Camp Chimino, where they learned how to ride, shoot, skate. It's just a crazy story, Josh, like you said. The first week, six days, they were already six days behind in shooting. They spent uh, 900000 for 1.5 minutes of usable film. By the end of two weeks, they were 10 days behind and 15 pages behind and had less than three minutes of film approved. So this thing was, uh, was not going to work out. You're right. Yeah, I mean, it's irresponsible. It's irresponsible as a person. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So, but there needed to be an executive there in charge of it, too. Right, right. The studio, too, definitely uh, not doing their due diligence on making sure that this movie turned out the way that it, it could have or should have. Once they like, were like, hey, dude, you now work for us. We're not partners anymore. So if you don't get this done, we'll like just pull the plug or sue you. He got everything done in time. So, you know, sometimes you can't, you know, uh, you got, you, you can't let, uh, yeah, come up with a metaphor here, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, we'll just come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Heaven's Gate. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about the biggest flop of the year and possibly ever. Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. And uh, I kind of, uh, I got so wrapped up in our discussion of Vincent Canby in the previous <laughs> segment, uh, I forgot to bring up, you know, our previous viewings, but I think all of us, we had not seen this film before watching it for this podcast. No, and I got to give us no. all credit because I think we all watched this and The Deer Hunter and The Deer Hunter's three hours long. And I also watched Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which comes in at a mere two hours. Yeah, mm. it's definitely uh, quite the undertaking to watch this film uh, or to watch The Deer Hunter. And I had never seen either of them, but you're right. I think we, you know, we both agreed that The Deer Hunter is kind of key background for this, especially because that was what got Chimino in the position to make Heaven's Gate. And as I alluded to earlier, I did not care for The Deer Hunter <laughs> Although I expected to like it. I mean, Heaven's Gate has this bad reputation and sure it's been rehabilitated a little, but it still does have a largely bad reputation. The Deer Hunter, however, is considered a classic. It still has a good reputation. I thought I'm probably gonna be really into this. I like a lot of these sort of 70s auteur projects. And I just thought the Deer Hunter was incredibly tedious. And so much of, again, about what I didn't like about the Deer Hunter, which is that every scene feels like it goes on for 20 extra minutes beyond what it should. The first hour of the deer hunter is this extraordinarily dull and tedious wedding sequence. And I, I, I just, loved it. I, and like, I, you know, I took some breaks there as I think maybe you did as well, but watching that, that wedding part of the deer hunter and kind of, you know, stopping toward the end of that when they're maybe about to finally go to Vietnam, I, I honestly thought like I could just not watch the rest of this movie. There's nothing that's going to win me over here. And, and there wasn't. I watched it for, this was the first time I watched it. I think it's honestly, I put it in my letterbox. It's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. And all the stuff that you disliked, I thought was great. Like you're getting this glimpse into this very unique culture and like this specific immigrant American culture as well. And all those things were important because it showed the bond of those characters and how it all changed when a few of them went to war and how, and when they came back. So that was kind of what excited me about, you know, Heaven's Gate. 
um, is like, are we going to get like, you know, it's immigrants, it's uh, the American West. Like it's this whole story again. I will say this, Josh, I started this movie before you guys, I think like a few days before, and it felt like a great weight had been lifted off (laughs) my shoulders when I finished it. I don't love this movie by any means. Like I'm just okay on it. I'm not gonna, but I mean, I, I think there's a value to it for sure. I mean, so it starts off with with a sequence that I suppose is kind of analogous to the wedding yeah. sequence in N- The Deer N- Hunter. No, I'm going to disagree because this is way more um, unnecessary because, you know, you could cut that whole thing. You could cut the prologue and the epilogue, which they almost did. Um, I don't think if you did that in The Deer Hunter, it would work like from an emotional standpoint here. You could cut the whole thing. And it would be fine. Like if the if the if the movie started where like, hey, the train's coming in and Chris Christopherson's getting off the train, and it's like, you really lose nothing. Except that Harvard stuff is just beautiful and like total spectacle. And I kind of like it. I don't care about the speech and all this, but I just like the way he makes things look and uh the the overall just grandeur of it. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I I agree that you could have cut it and it should have cut it. It's just completely, not only is it unnecessary, but it it starts out and I'm like, this movie is completely incoherent. Uh, So it is the graduation at Harvard in 1870 with Chris Christopherson's character and John Hurt's character. And maybe I'm just stupid because they are the graduation ceremony. Joseph Cotton, the great Joseph Cotton shows up as, uh, I, I don't know some sort a of reverend chaplain or something yeah. at campus gives a speech that I did not understand. Then John Hurt comes up and he's the class orator giving a, a sort of a valedictory kind of speech that gets this raucous response from the audience. And I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, it's at the beginning of the movie and I'm like, this is clearly meant to sort of establish the themes that we're then going to see throughout the film. And it made no sense to me. Yeah, uh, so it, he played the Reverend Dr. Joseph Cotton. That was the name. And I don't think his speech was as, that was even more like uh, unnecessary. I mean, at least the character of Billy, like his speech was supposed to have some type of meaning going forward, right? And I think that was the idea of like, we're not just supposed to strive for the greatest things, but we're also supposed to appreciate the things that we have or who we are or something like that. So it's like, Hey, we might be rich, but that doesn't mean we should not appreciate other people type thing. And so thematically the point was that, right? Like, which is what we got into later in the movie. Like, Hey, we might be better off than others, but that doesn't mean we take them for granted. But yeah, the, the crowd, at uh, Harvard, loved the way he said it. That's for and, sure. And I just didn't know what he, you know, why. Like I, I didn't moments, either. There's moments when he says something, and the crowd just erupts into laughter. And I, I, I don't know what what is he talking about. <laughs> and the, that whole character, John Hurt's whole character, is completely superfluous. Has no purpose whatsoever in the movie. Stands around, kind of drunkenly rambling in a handful of scenes, and then gets murdered in the final battle, and could have been cut entirely. Well, that could have saved some time off. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and yeah, you're right. That that central theme that you, Jason, just articulated far better than the movie does, the idea that Chris Christopherson is this, obviously, he comes from a wealthy background. He's Harvard educated, but he goes out to Wyoming and is a marshal in this sort of lawless town to protect these immigrants who are coming to try to make a better life for themselves. That is the theme if if there is some sort of theme about um you know him appreciating that and not being on the side of all the other wealthy people led by Sam Waterston with this cattle ranchers association who are trying to literally just murder all these immigrants and they also have John Hurt on their side i guess he kind of objects but then he's there in the final battle participating and killing people and it, i didn't he's not really participating i think he's just there saying why are we doing this you know but he's there doing... he's right he yeah. could have just been at home like drinking and not in a fi- firefight where he does get killed yeah i can't i can't disagree there so there, yeah there so so chris christopherson is the uh the marshal here in johnson county wyoming and hey josh can i stop you for one second though sure isn't it sad josh that i could say 
this story of these immigrants who are just trying to come and live the American dream and these racist Americans murdering them and taking away their chance to live is still reflective of society today. Michael Cimino is making a statement, not just on art and society of the time, but before the time, but of all times, Josh, of all times. That is true. Certainly that kind of uh, conflict is still sadly relevant. Although as far as I could tell, just from, you know, brief reading, this is based on a, a real incident, the Johnson County war, but in reality, they were not uh, Eastern European immigrants. And it was not about immigrants versus, uh, it was more just about the rich versus the poor. I mean, again, that just shows you Chimino's, uh, you know, Lack understanding of of for s- historical accuracy, <laughs> <laughs> understanding of society and human nature is what I was going to go with. But sure, sure. sure. I, I mean, that to me is like, I don't really care. You know, I've mentioned this before, if, if not on this podcast, then, then elsewhere. Like, I'm fine with the idea that movies inspired by or based on true stories play with the facts as long as the movie itself is interesting. But I think in this movie, it doesn't necessarily, uh, that doesn't apply. So the problem isn't necessarily that, that Chimino didn't care about historical accuracy. It's that what he puts on screen isn't actually interesting in any way. Okay. But uh, <laughs> so Chris Christopherson is uh, Jim Averill. He is the Marshal of Johnson County. And he has a sort of a love triangle going on here. Uh, we have yet to mention the other two main stars of this film, which are uh, Isabelle Huppert as the local sort of brothel madam who is, I think, meant to be French-Canadian, but uh, Huppert herself is French. And uh, Christopher Walken, who plays Nate Champion, who starts the movie as a sort of enforcer for this cattle ranchers association. He is murdering the immigrants and then eventually comes around to the other side and realizes he's not actually serving justice by killing these people who are being blamed for being thieves and anarchists and whatever, and obviously just kind of scapegoated. So, but both of them are in love with Ella, the Isabel Huppert character. Not a whole lot of compelling uh, romance going on here, although lots of nudity. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what how, did you did you buy into that romance, uh, Jason? No, I want you. I want to let you summarize the movie. So, no, I'm. Uh... No, of course. Look, it's a mess. There's a lot of me- a mess going on here. I kind of like the walk-in, you know, arc for that character who is, you know, just the bad guy who shoots immigrants until he learns that, like, hey, I'm on the wrong side of this thing, you know, and then turns. Um, yeah, like the the romance, you know, I mentioned McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It did feel a little McCabe and Mrs. Miller-ish with the whorehouse and you know, the Wild West and everything like that. But obviously, uh, it's it's not as good as a film as that. But uh, yeah, no, it's all over the place. You know, there's, I mean, you're, you've mentioned two elements and I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, man, this is going to be a long uh, synopsis he's got to go through. Well, I mean, that, that kind of, that kind of stuff, like the basic beats of it, right? There, there's the love triangle and then there's the battle between the Cattle Ranchers Association led, or whatever they're called. I'd probably miss yeah, naming them. The Wyoming Stock Growers Association. Stock Growers Association. There you go. Led by Sam Waterston's character, who is, uh, you know, he never, he does, his mustache isn't big enough to twirl, but he might as well be doing that for how villainous he is. Frank Canton. He's a bastard. Yeah. He is a bastard. And uh, they put out the death list of 125 people that they've decided to kill, which is nearly every resident of Johnson County, including Ella, the uh, Isabel Huppert character. And, uh, and then there's a big battle. I mean, there's- A few there's, big battles. There's yeah, a there's a couple of big battles. It's really unnecessary. And I mean, there's a lot of extra elements to this film, but that is the, bl- the basic plot structure. Part of the problem for me too, is that this film is so long and so sort of shapeless that we establish the urgency of like an armed group of mercenaries are about to kill literally every person in this town. And then we have a 10 minute roller skating scene. Well, Josh, clearly that goes to Chibino's uh, philosophy on no matter what is going on in life, one should appreciate beauty and human connection. And that, uh, 
just the impossibility of things that are both tragic and wonderful at the same time, uh, showcasing these matters uh, as divergent yet connected all the way through yet again, just shows what a genius he is. I mean, I don't know if you believe that or not, but I feel like that is encapsulates probably what he's uh, what he's imagining. You, know, you didn't even approach. mention Jeff Bridges yet. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Bridges. Okay, I had to look at Wikipedia to be like, who the fuck is this character played by Jeff Bridges? Like, it is very unclear who he is. He is it's John L. Bridges. Yeah, sure. He's some sort of local businessman. At first, I thought he was the mayor of the town, but he's not the mayor. He's just some sort of local businessman who runs uh, Heaven's Gate, which is the name of the like town That's hall meeting hall yeah uh, slash event center rink event slash, center. yeah whatever um also not really a necessary character he gets drunk one time and uh, uh chris christopherson has to help him dump him in a wagon and i guess they're friends but I mean, nothing in this movie. Did you think the wagon looked good at least? Uh, yeah. Like I said, the set design, the Oscar for the set design or the Oscar nomination for the set design, it does look great. They built this whole Western town and it looks like a real Western town. That is quite impressive. You can see the amount of money that they spent on, on recreating this historical uh, place. Uh, actually, Josh, you cannot see the amount of money because in that documentary, they had said that when it was done, Chimino looked at one of the streets and he said, no, it's supposed to be further apart. So they said, okay, cool. We can move um, this one side of the street six feet back and that'll be the easiest way to do it and we could save money. And he said, no, I demand that you uh, move each side of the street three feet back. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I'm sure he would argue that if you watch the scene... Yeah, there was a purpose for it. There was a purpose for it. Right, 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 right. So, no, I mean, this movie is full of insane details. One thing that I noticed that was just so bizarre and, you know, but it's obviously on purpose. There's a scene where I believe it's uh, Chris Christopherson and Jeff Bridges are in some sort of saloon. And uh, some of these, uh, I think it's some of the immigrants come in to talk to them and say, well, you know, what are you going to do about the, the Stock Growers Association? And as they're having this discussion between Jeff Bridges and Chris Christopherson, they're sitting in front of a window. And outside the window, across the street from the saloon, is a guy juggling bowling pins for the entire duration of the scene. It's just wonderfully, you know, again, he's painting with uh, his extras, like Zygismond said. So um, why not? You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of appreciated the absurdity of that. But at the same time, I was like, it's distracting me from the substance of the scene here that is an important discussion between these two characters. Josh, did you know this was uh, an uncredited Willem Dafoe's first movie? And of course, Mickey Rourke's second film where he played Nick. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of these sort of uh, up and coming actors who make brief appearances in this film. In addition, uh, I noticed Tom Noonan, who, you know, way back oh, yeah. we talked about his was. film. Uh, what happened was, and uh, Terry O'Quinn, who of course we all know from from Lost, playing the military commander. So yeah, yeah. a lot of a lot of little parts for very talented actors. Terry O'Quinn is great in Patriot. Also, I have to recommend that. So all of these guys, good actors. I mean, and- yeah, like we can go back and forth. I think it's you know it's a completely absurd movie. Um, I thought there was a lot of beauty to it, and uh, there was enough there for me where I'm not going to trash it. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to just ride that first wave, be a, be a follower. You know, I'm not just going to jump on the bandwagon, Josh. I'm going to come up with my own opinion. I'm going to think for myself and I'm going to base it on that thought. Those All thoughts, right. Josh. No, that, and as you should. And, and I don't need to just harp on every little detail of this film that I feel didn't work. I no, think but I've if you want, it's, it's been amusing. So if you want to keep going with a few more, like I'm happy. I, I just wanted to make sure to mention the juggling extra, because to me, that was just a sort of the epitome <laughs> well, of the, what the fuckness of this film. Before we rate it, can Dave, do you have anything you would like to chime in with? Honestly, not really. I mean, <laughs> I, I, Jason, I agree with you though. It is a very beautiful looking movie aside from that last battle scene i i think it looks great but that's like the only positive i've got i guess christopher walken can be fun at times yeah, yeah. but o- o- otherwise nothing All so right. uh should we rate this out of uh five uh 
juggling extras. <laughs> yeah, sure. there's a good one. <laughs> uh, I was going to say five uh, deaths of movie studios, but juggling extras. <laughs> that is works fine. too. Yeah. So uh, on Letterboxd, I had it as three, and then I did research on this movie, and um, the American Humane Association has it on its unacceptable film list. Uh, which means that you know the cockfights and the horses were dying, and I, I don't, I don't care for that. So I drop it a a full star based wow. on animal treatment, Josh. Okay. Two stars. I've defended it for its content, but I will never defend it for inhumanity towards man nor beast. Yeah, mm. I definitely noticed that that cockfight scene and thought this this has to. I had be to turn movie. away from it. Yeah, it's honest. pretty unpleasant to watch. It really is. So uh, that is only one of the things uh, that uh, <laughs> I obviously dislike. But I'm going to give it one and a half juggling extras. I, I do appreciate the ambition, even if it's a wholly misguided ambition. He went for it. And as much as I didn't like sitting through it, I have to, you know, sort of give him credit for something that no one else maybe would have done. So, Josh, the lesson here is you could get a decent review if you're not cruel to animals. From Jason, yes. Yeah. From Jason. Yeah. And, and from me. Right, Dave is quite the I'm, animal lover. Yeah, I'm going to drop it a star too. I, I agree with you, Jason. Yeah, definitely. I, I went two and a half on Letterboxd. I'm dropping it to one and a half. Screw wow, this Wow, okay. We agree then for entirely yeah. different reasons. We but, yes. have taken yeah. a stand here on Awesome Movie Year, much like the immigrants in Heaven's Gate took a stand against those bastard stock Breeder cattlemen. The stock boys? Is that what we're going to call them? <laughs> Whatever they were. Stock growers associates. Yeah. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Heaven's Gate. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we have been talking about Michael Cimino's notorious flop, Heaven's Gate. And the immediate, the immediate legacy, of course, of this film is its, its spectacular failure, which led at least partially to uh, the downfall of the studio United Artists, which was, was sold off and you know, lost its status as like an independent entity. And it's also credited, although uh, not maybe solely, but as a huge part of the decline of this new Hollywood era that you know we talked a lot about, especially in our 1977 season, where directors like Chimino and Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg were given this level of freedom to create their artistic visions, and you know it worked out successfully box office wise for a long time. But you know as they had these grander visions that didn't work out, studios started exerting more control. And we sort of transition into that blockbuster era that we see as the 1980s go on. Yeah, I kind of, so, you know, United Artists, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, D.W. Griffith, right? It was exactly what they said. It was the studio for artists and had a legendary kind of run. And uh, it was owned, I mean, by this point, it was owned by a, the Transamerica Corporation, right? So they said that, yeah. As bad as this movie was financially, they made because of the corporation, they were able to like make up for the debt within one day, right? So maybe it was the fact that it was owned by a corporation that didn't really care about making movies or what happened with the movies that also killed it off, right? I so that's part of it, but yes, okay, it helped kill that more sadly or sadder, as most people would say, is that idea of it did kind of kill. New Hollywood, um, not that the 80s weren't uh, a a wonderful time for movies, but I think really now more than ever, we're seeing the need for like these auteurs and that vision because, you know, everything's a Marvel movie or a franchise movie. And I think where we're getting at is on like those streaming limited series, but it would be nice to see more of that just as movies, you know, so. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you know, we talk about people from this era. I mean, we we talked about Francis Ford Coppola when we covered The Cotton Club. And, you know, he's having to put up $120 million of his own money in order to make his vision currently that he's trying to get going. And Scorsese's only making movies like 
the Irishman or, you know, uh, flat, what's it called? Flowers Kill, killers of, of the flower moon. Yeah. That's that, that one's at Apple TV. Irishman was at Netflix cause he couldn't get it anywhere else. So, you know, we're not getting these in the setting that we necessarily like to get them. Um, and, and it's as all mu- Michael Cimini's fault. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm dropping another star off. Already. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh... stra- strangely enough. So this did basically kill Michael Cimino's career uh, as a major filmmaker, although he continued to work. He made four more films. Yeah. Uh, four more films over the course of his career. The last film in 1996, um, but he lived until 2016. So, I mean, he at a certain point stopped being able to get funding, even for those smaller films, all of which were failures commercially and critically. But uh, it's, it was weird to me. So that to me is sort of not a surprise that whatever movies that he made after this were smaller films, they didn't succeed. But as I think we talked about when we talked about Footloose, he was offered the chance to direct that big studio film that even after this, some studio said, hey, let's give Michael Cimino the chance to direct our teen dance movie. That's going to be a big mainstream play. And he eventually turned that down because they didn't want to uh, go with his artistic vision. But the fact that he was even offered that movie is kind of surprising to me. Well, yeah, he he I thought he was like on it, but he was already turning it into just like a total, you know, different project than what it was. Like it was Herbert Ross, right? If I remember. Yeah, and he then, was like, the eventual director. But he was supposed to be directing and then he wanted too much money and they brought Chimino in and Chimino's plans were so just against what they were looking for. They were like, just give Herbert Ross the money, <laughs> you know? So. Right. And it's not surprising that Chimino would not be willing to come in and just do what the studio wanted on this teen dance movie. But it is surprising that they even thought that that could happen. I want to say one thing about those uh, other movies that he made. I haven't seen any of them. I don't think any of us have. No. Tarantino's, Quentin Tarantino's a huge fan of like You're the Dragon, I think. So at least the, like, there's a big fight scene that he loves in there. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if some or all of those movies have cult followings because of this sort of mystique around Michael Cimino as a whole from The Deer Hunter from Heaven's Gate, and just because as a person, he was reclusive, he rarely gave interviews. Uh, When he did give interviews in his early days when he was a big uh, up-and-coming star, he often lied about his own personal background in order to play up certain things related to his films. You know, he was this larger-than-life, ridiculous figure. So people like that always attract uh, sort of cult followings. I mean, Josh, you had mentioned Coppola with the Cotton Club, which wasn't the first. I mean, those earlier movies he was doing in the 80s weren't huge hits either, right? You know, we talk about Chimino here. Peter Bogdanovich also in the 70s from Last Picture Show to the stuff he was doing after, right? Like Scorsese with New York, New York. It was all of them. Chimino might take the blame. I mean, Scorsese recovered the quickest, I'd say. Even Spielberg did in 1941 and 1981, right? So, like, you know, they all had their misses, you know? So I think it was not just... It's easy for him to be like, this is Michael Chimino's fault, but it was... There was a change going on in this industry at that time. Yeah, there was. I mean, and this was sort of the most high-profile one. But certainly there was that uh, one from the heart, the Coppola film, uh, I think more so than the Cotton Club is uh, the one where he really had that kind of carte blanche to do whatever. And it was just a spectacular failure. And I kind of like one from the heart, as I think I probably said in our Cotton Club episode. But you're right. It's not only Chimino's fault. Obviously, I'm exaggerating there. But this one is the most notable because of the scale of its failure. So I had mentioned Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which was a movie set. It's all right. It's not great, but it's all right. It's him. And Clint Eastwood gave him the chance to direct it because um, he had written Island Running in Magnum Force. I think Eastwood was in Magnum Force, right? So, and the thing with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is like Chimino, who might do like, for instance, on um, this movie, Heaven's Gate, where he would do 52 takes of Chris Christopherson waking up and whipping that, you know, in that scene, which is totally just like literally waking up and cracking his whip, you know, Clint Eastwood is like, uh, is known for like, Hey, we're going and we're, and once we get it, we're moving on. So that's what I mean. Like he, 
you know, Chimino would ask like, Hey, can I do another take? And East would be like, no, we're, we're done. Like, and, and it worked, right? Like, you know, that that's what he needed there. As fun to read about as this stuff is like, you look at all the projects that he had in development that didn't ever make it. And you're like, man, could he have, could one of these have hit, like, you know, he wanted to do the fountain head. He was an Ayn Rand guy, I think. Uh, that doesn't um, surprise me. Yeah. But the one, <laughs> I mean, I looked at a lot of these, the one that I was really excited about was the, the lives and dreams of Frank Costello, who's like a big gangster, you know, and it was co-written by James Toback, who was also this type of storyteller and, um, indulgent shall we say right so, yeah that's one way to put it about james Sobak. i'm not talking about look we don't i'm not getting i'm talking about him on screen right right so, yes you know, yeah so. sure um and then but chimino he also has two books that he wrote big jane conversations in miroir so and like you said this movie's been reassessed it was a huge hit in venice and new york and like the late in uh, like 2012 and everything. So, you know, it is what it is, baby. Yeah. In 2012, there was a version, a slightly different version. That's uh, I think three minutes shorter than the main uh, original premiere version that Chimino oversaw that premiered at the Venice film festival and, and generated a kind of a new round of appreciation for this film. And certainly there are staunch defenders of heaven's gate as an artistic vision um, as much as it killed Chimino's career and killed the studio, I mean, the actors in this film all continue to succeed. Chris Christopherson, you know, obviously is a musical legend, but acted, you know, steadily for the next 40 years. Uh, he did a lot of work with John Sayles, who I love. You know, we talked about Lone Star in one of our episodes, also worked on Limbo and Silver City with John Sayles. Um uh, the Blade movies, of course, on the uh, other <laughs> end of the spectrum and a million other things. I mean, he was one of these guys who would just work and work and work, although he did officially retire in 2020. I think they'll make a movie about his life at some point, right? So. It seems likely, especially with the, the proliferation of those kinds of movies and series these days. And then, you know, he had The Highwaymen with Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. Like, what a cool outfit that is right there. Yeah, an amazing singer and songwriter in addition to an actor. You know, Christopher Walken, of course, is like a pop culture icon and works constantly. Yeah, I we talked about him when we did Pulp Fiction way back in our first season. We talked about him in Geely uh, to talk about another flop. You know what? Imagine that to have been in two of the most notorious flops of all time and still be this beloved can't, figure. You can't stop him, dude. Uh, nope. He's currently on Severance, which is great on Apple TV Plus. He's got another. Uh, series coming out, I think, on FX called The Outlaws. Um, it's an Amazon series, yeah, with Stephen okay. Merchant. Yeah. I mean, dude, 77, 78, best pictures both years, Annie Hall and um, The Deer Hunter. He's got the Oscar for The Deer Hunter for Best Supporting Actor. He's got two Drama Desk Awards, two Obies, and an MTV Video Music Award for his work with Fat Boy Slim. If you yeah, that, that music video where he dances uh, through the hallways is also another iconic thing. He was nominated again for an Oscar in 2002 for Catch Me If You Can. Which is so great. It shows a, such a different type of performance from him, too. And yeah, just an incredibly talented guy. Uh, Isabelle Huppert is an icon of French cinema yeah. and works internationally. She is in American movies from time to time, including I Heart Huckabees. Um, I think that might be her most notable American film was nominated for an Oscar for uh, just a few years ago for Elle, the Paul Verhoeven film. She's worked Is that with... good? Did you see that one? I have not yeah, seen Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's Verhoeven, so it's very like deliberately button pushing and provocative. And she's this woman who, uh, this guy breaks into her house and rapes her and then uh, she likes it. And uh, they sort of form this weird relationship where he continues breaking into her house and raping her over and over again. It's it's certainly tough to watch at times, but she commits to it. And she's this kind of, of, of actor who, you know, she works with people like Paul Verhoeven, Claire Denis, Michael Haneke, Hong Sang-soo, you know, auteurs who she's clearly up for whatever they want her to do. Michael Cimino. Exactly. <laughs> it, no, seriously. I, it's true. Yeah. And I, I could see her as someone, I mean, she didn't, but I could absolutely see her as someone who would have worked with Cimino again and yeah. would have just gone with whatever his crazy vision was. I, I should say, like, you know, the story is that basically, like, you know, Jane Fonda and every, you know, American popular actress at this time was turning this role down. And Ch but Chimino did fight for Huppert to be in this movie. 
And and she's a great actor. She really is and is so versatile in all of these different kinds of parts in multiple languages. Uh, you know, Hong Sang-soo is, is a Korean uh, filmmaker. And, you know, she's the only, I think she's the only like non-Korean actor who's been the star of one of his films. And she's been in two of them. So, you know, someone who is sought out by this wide range of filmmakers. And, uh, you know, we talk about Jeff Bridges, who has kind of a supporting part in this film, but he's, of course, an icon too. Jeff Bridges nominated seven times yeah. for Oscars. Amazing. And, and one for Crazy Heart. Yes. So, uh, you know, he doesn't do a whole lot in this film, but is just generally an amazing actor. And, uh, you know, right from the jump, I think Last Picture Show is right where most where he was discovered and he's great right from the jump and all that stuff. Uh, his, his new thing, maybe that's the FX thing. The old man, a former intelligence officer living off the radar, finds himself targeted for assassination. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like it's going to be great with him. You know? Yeah, I look forward to that. And that was something where they had to kind of pause producing it because uh, Jeff Bridges had been diagnosed with cancer and Wonder When Treatments and thankfully is doing better now. And I think they're, they're back on track to get that show out uh, soonish. And I definitely look forward to that on FX. So, uh, I mean, you should mention John Hurt. Some of I mean, he's a pretty big legend there, you know, elephant man. Yes. The, uh, the elephant man, isn't there something that supposedly this movie took so long to make that John Hurt went off and made the elephant man in the middle of production of, and then came back. Yeah. Yeah. That, that and the other sense. thing is, um, you know, that whorehouse set when they were done, they were like, okay, I guess we'll tear it down. And they were like, does anyone want it? And Jeff Bridges was like, I'll take it. And then he just moved that set. He numbered like the logs and rebuilt it on his own property. And like he lives there in Montana sometimes. So. He lives in the whorehouse from Heaven's Gate. I mean, it's like his cabin now. Yeah. That amazing. is amazing. I think that is a perfect note to end on. Far out, man. So that <laughs> is Heaven's Gate. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check out uh, our flops on social media. My website is definitely a social media flop. It's called goforjason.com. I wouldn't check it out. However, I got to say, on the other socials, man, we're riding high, baby. Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all of them. And Josh, of course, we as a unit are together at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. My website, joshbellhateseverything.com. Mostly a flop, really, too. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook. And at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where I'm sure there's some people who have reassessed Heaven's Gate. Yeah, let us know. I guarantee you someone, someone or more than one someone will tell us how Heaven's Gate is brilliant. And I look forward mm -hmm. to hearing from them. So... Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, I'm very excited. It's a movie I love. Uh, it is the Palme d'Or winner from 1980, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. So tune in next time for All That Jazz, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.